0: Working together, you can tap the lowest cost opportunities in any given place, and as you're pursuing net zero, you can tap into the opportunities for carbon capture and storage or nature-based removals. You can get to the goal faster and cheaper than if each country acts in isolation.
2: Hi, I'm Susan McGeeche, head of the BMO Climate Institute. The BMO Climate Institute's vision is to convene a strategically planned system of technical expertise, enabling policies, incentives, and investment to advance decarbonization. Our role is to be our client's lead partner in the transition by helping to accelerate innovation, convene partnerships, and finance the technologies and other solutions we need to enable the transition to a low carbon economy. The International Emissions Trading Association, or as we'll call it for the remainder of this discussion, AIDA, is a key enabler of this system. I'm excited to be here today with Dirk Forrester, CEO of AIDA. Welcome, Dirk.
0: Thank you, Susan. So glad to be with you. Thanks for inviting me.
2: So, Dirk, before we get into your latest work and priorities for COP26, perhaps you can share a bit on AIDA's history, the global role you've been playing as the business voice on market solutions for climate
0: change. Sure. AITA began in the aftermath of the Kyoto Protocol. It was actually established over 20 years ago, 1999. And it was set up by a group of companies that thought that the market components of the Kyoto Protocol were going to be important for enabling their businesses to make the changes they needed to make to address climate change. So it's always been about market cooperation. And from those humble days, I think there were around 20 people at the original AIDA meeting. We've grown to be about 180 companies that operate globally many of them only in single markets, obviously, like uh, the European carbon market or the Chinese carbon market or California. But they all have common interests on what they would like from international negotiations, because they kind of understand where climate policy is headed, what net zero means for them, and the ability to cooperate through markets is going to be super important to achieving their goals. So we're accredited observers at um, the Glasgow Summit. We'll go there with a a delegation and we'll uh, try to be available to answer any questions about how markets will react to policy decisions. And we do the same thing with national governments around the world, uh, including there in Canada, both at the federal and provincial level. So that's a little bit about AIDA.
2: That's great, Dirk. I mean, it's certainly a rapidly evolving space, and I just want to go back for a moment. I suppose in in your long history, back in 2019, Aida released a research paper that demonstrated how international cooperation in the carbon trading market could save as much as 250 million U.S. dollars per year by 2030, 345 billion per year by 2050 and $988 billion by 2100. By reinvesting these savings in GHG reduction solutions, I understand from the research, the modeling estimated a global reduction of 5 billion tons a year in 2030. So couldn't you give us an example of how international trading arrangements can achieve these types of carbon and financial savings?
0: First of all, I should acknowledge the modelers that did this are housed at the University of Maryland. They're professionally employed by the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, so one of the US national labs. And they run a model called GCAM. And GCAM has been used on every IPCC report since the first one. So it's been there for a long time. I used to work at the US Energy Department and used to rely on on these models and others for helping us understand what the implications of policy decisions were. So the modelers, uh, as they they looked at this, found that because everybody has a different starting point on climate change, their mitigation opportunities and costs vary widely. And that's part of the reason that many of the, the targets they've taken vary widely. And if you plot those out and take them forward to say, if they continue on that trajectory out till the end of the century, what would they accomplish? You get a kind of a spaghetti diagram because they all have different cost curves. So it doesn't take a a genius, although these guys might be geniuses, but to figure out that if you allow them to cooperate and instead of a spaghetti chart, you have a single line, a a market converging price, that it's going to be cheaper for some of them and others of them are going to make money. So that that analysis you pointed to, and they've done quite a number of runs, and they've actually inspired a lot of other economic modelers to tune up to do this as well. And they all kind of find similar results, and, and, and it actually kind of confirms what I think we would think in terms of just normal human nature, that working together... You can tap the lowest cost opportunities in any given place. And as you're pursuing net zero, you can tap into the opportunities for carbon capture and storage or nature-based removals. You can get to the goal faster and cheaper than if each country acts in isolation. So that's that's kind of what the models show. and, And probably the most dramatic type of change in my mind is, Not everybody has tropical forests that have the capability of both saving emissions from stopping deforestation, but also sequestering huge amounts of carbon. And not everybody has great underground reservoirs. So what the the modeling shows is that cooperation through the channels offered in Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, in other words, linked carbon markets can drive investment to the places where they can do the most good at any given point in time. So you get a much more rational economic outcome.
2: So you've just published phase two of this modeling work, which now looks at global and regional trading dynamics and and investment flows in a net zero world. What are the biggest takeaways from this analysis?
0: Well, this time we we tried to put a, a net zero frame on it and tried to squeeze the models to produce an outcome that could give us uh, as close to one and a half degrees as possible. And what we learned is, let's say, three big lessons, at least for me. One is, again, maybe a no-brainer to some of your listeners, and that is, the longer you wait, the harder it is, because the model uses a global atmospheric budget, right? Just like it has a an ability to uh, simulate that global carbon budget that is thought to be equivalent to either two degrees or one and a half degrees. And if you use up too much of it at the front end, you get really squeezed at the back end. So the sooner you start, the better. The second thing that I think it taught us was, uh, again, a timing lesson. We have some big emitters out there, some big countries that haven't actually announced what year they would hope to get to net zero. But if, if big countries like India and China and Russia take longer than 2050 to get to net zero, and, and I think China's pledged to get there by 2060, Russia's recently announced that they'll do the same as China. And if India takes that or something later, it basically means you can't get to a one and a half degree level of protection unless some other countries go a lot faster, so United States, Canada, much of the OECD is focused on trying to get to net zero by 2050. If uh, China, Russia, India take longer, like 2060, then somebody's got to make that up and do it faster. So that's an important lesson, just about the phasing and the timing. But the, the other lessons are really about trading. You know, when you hear the term net zero, many environmentalists, friends of mine, only hear the zero. They want to gloss past the net. And the net is hugely important because most countries don't, not, don't have the capacity to get the zero on their own. They either don't have the money or they don't have the storage potential, So what it tells you is that you need, I think, three things to make it work. You need rational timing and sped up timing. The second thing you need is the ability to cooperate across borders through trading. And the third thing is that you need removals in a big way. And eventually the model sort of shows that all of the trading at the end of the day, you know, like 20, 30 years from now is going to be in removals. And some of those will be from nature. So this is good news for forest owners and farmers because there are improved techniques that farmers can undertake that would help to sequester carbon in soils. There's great potential in soils and and the same in forests. It means great things for reforestation and it means great things for opportunities in wetlands and and algae growing and things like that. It also means that we have to get serious about carbon capture storage and utilization. I know in Canada there's some great examples of this in Alberta and Saskatchewan. We have to have many more of those so we have to prove out and build public confidence in the ability to store carbon either underground or to take it to physical form so that it's sequestered in building materials and the like. So I think the removal side comes out as hugely important in this. So it's back to the timing um, and getting sped up timing, uh, having the ability to trade. And then third, a lot of it's about removals.
2: I mean, everything you're saying, it highlights the critical importance of establishing a rulebook for the transfer and trade in, in GHG reductions among nations. Um, it, you know, we know that's through Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. What happens if we don't see progress on the Article 6 rulebook coming out of Glasgow?
0: Well, so the authors of the Paris Agreement were really clever in how they drafted it, in that there's a part of Article 6 that does not require rules, it's good if you have rules, but you can cooperate with or without the rules. And that's the second piece uh, the the article 6.2. What it says is that if you are cooperating, if you are you know teaming up through um, market mechanisms, that you have to act in conformity with the rules that are there. Essentially, the language is such that you've got to conform to the rules. But if there aren't rules, you're free to do it on your own terms. So I do think that there will be a a lot of market activity that will happen under 6.2, with or without agreement in Glasgow. It's better if they get more clarity around uh, how you account for uh, transactions in Article 6.2, But governments can also uh, pioneer new approaches and do that with integrity, and the UN can catch up later. Now, my hope is, and we're pushing really hard on this, is that we want clarity now. We've had an extra year to think about this and work on solutions. And, and by the way, Susan, this was this was a topic that was supposed to be solved in COP 23, COP 24, COP 25, and the negotiators keep turning in an incomplete paper. Uh, this time, they've got a. They really uh, are under pressure, and I think that the, the area that you know, if they don't get agreement. The part that suffers is another part of Article 6, which is about creating a mechanism at the UN that any country can use to produce credits uh, and have them internationally recognized. So this would be Kyoto Protocol had the clean development mechanism. This is a a new and improved version of that that would be run by the UN um, Framework Convention on Climate Change. The good part about that is that there are countries in faraway places that may have difficulty accessing the market and finding cooperation partners if the UN isn't there providing some of the glue and some of the credibility. And it's credibility both at home and and convincing their own ministers that this is a reliable approach, but it's also giving credibility to the buy side that this is a trustworthy system, right? That they can can rely on it. So that's the part that I think will suffer the most. If they don't get an agreement, 6-4 will get too far behind. Now, the good news is that there are independent standards that we're using in the aviation markets under uh, the ICAO um, Program for International Aviation. And those private standards are quite robust. They're recognized also in California and in Colombia and in South Africa. So people are already using them so uh this time around i think the un has a run for, run for the money in terms of the the standard setting and that there are independent standards that can carry out some of those functions again it's just better if it's got agreement and everybody's bought into it but i don't think you can hold these markets back because investors like like your institution are pressuring clients to get on a net zero pathway, and they need to chart their way forward. They need these mechanisms to work. So I don't think there's any holding it back. I just think it's better if the UN gets its act together and Glasgow's the perfect time and, and opportunity to do it.
2: That's well said, Dirk. I actually want to stay on the issue of credibility for a second. Uh, You know, the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition appears to be leaning toward a, a hierarchy of carbon credits that prioritize some credits, such as carbon removals over others such as reductions and avoidance and then of course we also have the science-based targets initiative which doesn't recognize the use of offsets and science-based reduction targets can you speak to the growing credibility concerns from that perspective in these markets and and how you believe these concerns will affect the structuring of a global trading system.
0: So there are parts of that that I think the AIDA view would be that there are parts of it that we we would agree with that eventually, just like that modeling showed, if you go out to the to the uh, 2050 time frame, maybe even in the 2040s, removal credits are going to start to dominate. They're going to be hugely important, unless we figure something else out. You know, I'm hoping there's a lot of bright engineers out in, uh, in garages in Silicon Valley figuring things out, right? We need innovation here. But based on what we know right now, there is going to be a need for removals to play a greater role. And I see the difference in this. as I I mean, science-based targets, I think they try to, we think they try to cut it too finely. They try to be too specific about what they think is right for a company to do when and where. And we think the whole spirit of the Paris Agreement is about flexibility for countries and companies or companies to figure out what works for them. But that notion of beginning to think about using credits for compensating for whatever your emissions are that are beyond regulation, that is going to start to get tighter and tighter. The amounts regulation is going to tighten down. That's going to mean that in some of these asset class categories, like a reduction in methane or a reduction in associated with adopting energy efficiency measures or renewable energy, gradually, those are going to be things that are required by law. So they might not be eligible to be a carbon credit anymore if it's required by the law. And it might be under a cap-and-trade system, so it's a different kind of a credit that's trading. But in the traditional offset programs, they would award credits for renewables. I'm going to pick renewables as an example. CDM produced a lot of credits for renewable projects. These days, not so much because things are changing, renewables are now in the money. In many places, it's cheaper to do renewables than fossil fuels. So it wouldn't pass what, uh, you know, one of the proofs of getting a carbon credit is you show that it's additional to what would happen anyway. And so I think that's an asset class that's kind of under pressure. It's not that it doesn't have great growth prospects, it does. It's just that it may have different drivers other than a carbon offset credit. So I think because it's, um, we're transitioning into the Paris timeframe, right? This is, we're now in the Paris Agreement periods, and in that period, countries have to elaborate what exactly they're doing at home, what's going to be covered by their national program. And then it's the leftovers that could be available for carbon crediting in a way. So I think it's partly that transition that it's drawn a lot of attention to voluntary markets in particular and what companies should be doing in voluntary markets, what kind of credits have veracity. But I think as more countries elaborate their plans, those discussions will get easier and uh, and it'll it'll get clearer. But I'm really kind of in, encouraged about the amount of activity happening to bolster voluntary markets and provide pathways so that companies can invest more at scale. Um, I, I'm happy to see that. But I think we're going through some growing pains there on sorting through at what point do you wean yourself off of reductions and avoidances, uh, which are generally more cost effective than removals, at least the removal type that are uh, you know associated with technology. Those are generally higher costs.
2: I actually have two questions out of that. So you've talked about the removals and you've talked about nature-based solutions. And I just want to... Keep on that for a second. Nature-based solutions are so important to us at BMO, uh, not only for the carbon reduction potential, but the co-benefits, such as the positive impact they have on biodiversity protection and restoration, as well as job creation. So. Can you speak a little bit more about the role in everything you've just said for natural climate solutions and, and perhaps touching again on, on credibility concerns, although I think you addressed that well. And after that, we'll move quickly into your view for the voluntary carbon markets.
0: On uh, nature-based solutions, I think... There's a lot more there there than um people give. Like it's easy to try to take pot shots at some of the programs that are that are in existence, but I actually think they're pretty robust and they're continually improving and they learn from each other. And this is the carbon independent carbon crediting standards that typically review and scrutinize and award the credits. They set up Uh, rigorous standards. They have third-party audits of whether projects meet those standards. And I think they're an important part of the picture on getting to net zero. I would say that the future of these, again, ties back to ultimately, where they get accepted for compliance. So a lot of your clients now might be doing this for voluntary purposes, and they may have as much interest in the water quality benefits or the women's health benefits or the employment benefits as they do the carbon. But I think one of the lessons that we've learned over the last, I'd say, three to five years is that where a government recognizes those types of credits for compliance, you'll typically see a lot more investment around it. And, and I'll use as an example, California. California, even though it has in its ETS limits on how many offsets you can use from those type of solutions, it's seen a tremendous boom of crediting on degraded lands on Native American reservations, where it's given those entities and ability to come forward with forest protection and and forest management programs that could qualify. And it stimulated a lot of investment into those communities. I think it's been hugely important. Whereas if you look at the European ETS, which we're also a fan of, it doesn't allow those. So there's been none of that kind of improvement in Europe not associated with the carbon market. So I think it's an area where I hope Europe learns a bit from you know they're now seeing prices up in the the 60 euro range. So I think they're getting serious about wanting to know what removals uh, in Europe might mean but also you know in in other countries what that might mean for them because they're hitting very painful price uh, levels. but I do think that that um, that aspect of getting it recognized in a compliance program also helps the voluntary side. So that then you know if you're buying a a unit in the voluntary market that's approved by one of these programs, that you're buying something that's governmentally sanctioned. You know, it's governmentally recognized as a as a compliance unit. This is something we're working on with a set of jurisdictions in a in a uh, a special initiative, where uh, Colombia is a, is an example where Colombia has a carbon tax. We've been working on them uh, on extending that tax or converting it into an emissions trading program. But what they already allow is that in, in compliance with the tax, you're allowed to tender a certain number of credits, including forestry credits. And again, it stimulated an enormous amount of economic activity in poor rural areas that you know, otherwise wouldn't have been a part of the climate game necessarily. And there and, uh, they're, they're um, uh, really benefiting. I guess what I'm getting at is this is important. It needs to expand in the voluntary markets. But one of the enablers of it will be if compliance markets start to increasingly recognize. And I'd say the places to watch are South Africa and Chile and uh, Singapore and um, and very possibly Indonesia as places that may have compliance systems that recognize these type of forest offsets.
2: And so for the voluntary markets, what's your view there in terms of their growth? I know we were hearing a lot about the task force for scaling voluntary carbon markets, and I believe AIDA is is playing a role in that initiative. So, you know, what's what's the role of that initiative? What's the role of AIDA there? And and where do you see the market going in the next five, 10 years?
0: Voluntary market, it's been growing the last couple of years substantially, but it's still tiny in the grand scheme of things. Because this year would be, uh, if if the trends hold, they'll finally reach a billion dollars in value, right? And so I remember working back in the Kyoto era on single CDM projects that were a billion in value, right? So there's, and of course, these are lower price. The volumes are bigger than that, but it needs to scale and there's ample room for it to scale. And I'm really, I think we're all indebted to Mark Carney for taking this on and being a champion of improving and scaling voluntary markets. Our role going forward. So they've, they've had a, a task force underway for the past year to try to come up with a process to look across all of the carbon crediting standards and to give them another assessment about whether they are actually producing the highest quality credits. And that's being established now. We're involved in running the secretariat for it, but the British Standards Institute is going to be developing the sort of the review process for scrutinizing the existing standards. And hopefully, if there are soft spots in any of those programs, it's going to identify them and hopefully they'll all improve and we'll continue this effort and improvement. But um, I think Kearney's hope is that instead of maybe growing by uh, double or triple that it scales up 15-fold over the next very few years. So that will involve getting enough public confidence in it and getting the trading instruments improved so that large financial institutions can lean into it and and, uh, provide investments at scale. Now, I know a lot of financial institutions, they don't trade commodities like they used to, let's put it that way. So the actual... Purchase of the offsets may be modest for them, but there's a lot of pressure that they can apply on their clients who who do emit carbon that may be viable purchasers. But also, I think, a vital role for investing in the underlying projects, because once you have a forward curve and it's maybe it's exchange traded, that's a hope for these things. If they get standardized enough to trade on exchange that can build a lot of confidence in the financial sector that you can see a forward curve. You can kind of, I mean, you don't have to look at AIDA's uh, modeling projections of what it might be. You can look at a real forward curve in a market and and get a sense of that. And I, I think that's going to be uh, ultimately wh- where a lot of the importance of that, that new initiative is.
2: I agree. It's a significant opportunity for financial institutions. And, you know, maybe Dirk, I'll leave you with the last question that, is a big issue for BMO and very much related, but more focused on those internationally transferred mitigation outcomes that we're talking about in Article 6. Can these ITMO agreements benefit corporations in addition to state players? And if so, how would multinational companies operating in GHG intensive industries participate in that system?
0: Well, I mean, that's certainly our vision is that, I mean, countries can use Article 6 and participate in these these trades of itmos that's, that's an internationally transferred mitigation outcome, which is what's referenced as a kind of, maybe it's kind of the accounting term that they're going to use in the Paris Agreement. It can be done at a sovereign level. But I think in many, many market economies, that responsibility is going to be devolved to entities that are emitting carbon. And so a lot of your clients that emit carbon are going to need these credits, and you may emerge as a supplier of those, and you will be able to, I mean, Article 6 is like one part of the Paris Agreement where the private sector role is expressly uh, noted, right? There's a a recognition that the private sector is going to be deeply engaged in it. So um, I think, there is value in what governments do in terms of framework agreements with each other. We've seen some pilots of this. Uh, Switzerland has been kind of leading the charge on this, where they've entered a couple of um, bilateral agreements with Peru and with Ghana on how they would cooperate under Article 6, how they would share benefits, how they would account for things. And I see those as kind of umbrellas under which companies in both jurisdictions could come in and and collaborate under a government framework. Japan is also working on that. And I know a lot of our uh, Canadian uh, members have been quite interested in this because Japan has entered, uh, I think, 17 bilateral agreements with trading partners that they would like to have future discussions about Article Six trading, these are a little bit more general. They haven't uh, necessarily said it's exclusively Article Six. It could be other types of you know aid or or that kind of program for Japan. But I think what's the twinkle in their eye <laughs> is that they want to have supply lines, and and theirs is not. Necessarily a trading club because I think, for example, I think Chile is one of the members, and Indonesia is one of you know. Both of them have MOUs with Japan, but it doesn't mean that they have an MOU with each other. So I think it's it's kind of more of a hub and spoke model, if you if you will, with Japan at the center and these supply lines with others. But I think after Glasgow, you'll start to see more of these governmental frameworks emerge. One of the things that we're interested in is if you look at what it would take for everybody to follow the Japanese path and have bilateral agreements with everybody they want to trade with, it can get really complex. And a country like Brazil or Indonesia or the Congo that are rich in forestry assets, they might end up having to service 50 agreements. And it would be a lot cleaner and simpler if there was a club they could join. And this goes back to the famous economic research that Professor Nordhaus did at Yale about the importance of having clubs that maybe you know, it's not necessarily the whole Paris Agreement as a club, it's subsets. And inside those subsets, you can have carrots and sticks that create strong trade relationships and reinforce climate goals. So I think that may be a model that that people find attractive. Um, I look at it and say, well, the EU ETS is a club, right? That's 27 countries that are collaborating in a single carbon market, and they have the same price. So the Competitiveness effects are are blunted because a cement industry in Germany faces the same price as their neighbors in France or their neighbors in Spain, and I think uh, North America is going to need that ultimately if we're really going to get you know take this problem on and deal with it seriously. So North America, we're lucky that Quebec and California have an operating model that we can all learn from, where they're. Their markets are tied together and uh, works really well. And again, the industries in those jurisdictions are exposed to the same price. But I think that's where the future is in, in seeing more of these collaborative arrangements that involve kind of a cluster of countries that are uh, bound together in achieving their Paris goals jointly. So we'll see. But I think that's where the the future is. And once those frameworks are there, the companies. It's a lot more straightforward for the companies. But in voluntary markets, we'll see companies, I think, pioneering ahead of the governments on those things and building a lot of the commercial instruments that are going to be needed so that they'll become allies in getting the governments to complete the frameworks.
2: That's a great uh, summary and wrap-up of the whole discussion, Dirk. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me to share your expertise on the environmental drivers and social and economic opportunities associated with environmental markets and, you know importantly, the practical actions that can be taken to increase liquidity. And thank you to our listeners. Stay tuned to learn more about how climate change intersects our social and financial systems as we continue to share perspectives from climate action leaders before, during and after COP26.
1: Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative.